which is more likely to revolutionize finance, AI or blockchain? If you can't deal with losing 30% of your money on paper for a few years, then risk less money. You know, the, the memory of 2008 is a little bit more faded. And I think they're extremely reluctant to want to do layoffs. There are things that are starting to, to creak for sure. It's just in terms of global wealth, everyone going vegan would have far, far, far more impact. Suppose it became illegal to exchange Bitcoin for dollars. People who are, who are generally smart uh, tend to be actually pretty poor investors. Welcome to the Gold Exchange Podcast, where we untangle market and policy complexity using timeless economic principles. For show notes and archives, go to goldexchangepodcast.com. Now, on to today's episode. Welcome back to the Gold Exchange Podcast. My name is Benjamin Nadelstein. I'm joined, as always, by founder and CEO of Monetary Metals, Keith Wiener. And we are joined today by special guest, Spencer Jacob. Spencer, welcome to the show. Spencer is uh, a Wall Street Journal columnist, writer of Heard on the Street. You've probably all heard it or read it. And he's actually written about Reddit in his most recent book, Revolution That Wasn't. Uh, and I also just finished your incredible book, which is Heads I Win, Tails I Win. Uh, so I absolutely suggest if Spencer writes it, you have to read it. Um, but no more about Spencer. We want to dive right in. We've got a certified expert with us today. So, Spencer, can we start with something kind of easy? What is short selling and why are short sellers so hated? Sure. Well, short sellers were really at the center of this story that I told about GameStop mania. And uh, they've been vilified for a long time. And if you go back to the first stock exchange uh, in the Netherlands in the 1600s, you know, very quickly, there was a, a ban instituted for a while on short selling. Short selling is basically doing the opposite of what most people do. You know, you, you buy stocks today, you know, it's, it's what the stocks are widely on back in that day. It was a, a you know, narrow group of speculators, but we're all hoping for the same thing to get dividends and for the price to go up. So you make money. Uh, short sellers bet on the, the opposite happening. And that, that seems like a, a bad thing. That seems like an evil thing. It, it actually, it's a huge misconception. It isn't at all. They're, they're really vital to the, the functioning of markets, because if you think about it, when you're making a bet on, on something, you can either vote yes or abstain. You can say, I'm going to buy the stock or I'm not going to buy the stock. You can't say, I'm going to not not buy the stock. You know, you, you don't typically bet that something is going to go down. But at any given time, and sometimes more than others, uh, stocks are overvalued or some stocks are like, you know, like Enron, uh, where they're outright frauds. And so short sellers are, are trolling through the market looking for opportunities like that. And they, they perform a pretty vital function and they do it at great risk to themselves. Not that they're angels, but they're looking to profit just like anyone else, but they do it at great risk because the nature of short selling is that the most you'll ever make is 100%. If you pick the, the fraud of the century and you sell it short, so you, you borrow the shares uh, and then sell them, so you have sold them without owning them, then you can have infinite losses if the, the stock goes up. Uh, a lot, but you can only make 100% if it goes to zero. And so, you know, their reward and risk are are the inverse of the normal investors. So they they have to be fairly confident. And for that, that reason, and this is one reason that they they get, um, you know, criticized is that you have to kind of shout it from the rooftops very often if you if you sell a stock short. 
uh, because you can't wait around forever. It's expensive to sell and risky to sell a stock short. And so, you know, you're like, I think that Acme Corp is, um, you know, way overvalued or that the management are frauds or whatever. You've got to tell everybody about it because you're, you're paying money to own, to, to be not own the stock, but to have sold it. You're, you're, you borrowed it from someone literally. Right. And so I borrow this stock, I sell it. The most I can make is whatever the difference between when I re-give that share back. And so that's 100%. But my downside is essentially unlimited, which is why there's this kind of pressure on me to, hey, shout from the rooftops why you think the stock needs to go down. That's right. And that's a big reason why if you, especially if you look at, it's not the only reason, but if you look at a, a stock about which many people are, are skeptical, uh, and that certainly happened the, all the meme stocks were had that thing in common. They were, they were in different industries, but that's the thing that they had in common. And many other stocks do too. Uh, if people are skeptical about it, then you have a lot of short interest in it. And what happens is that if the stock starts to rise for whatever reason, it could be a fundamental piece of news, but it could be something else, then the rise in that stock begets buying, not just because people are diving in saying, hey, this thing is going up, which is the normal reaction in the stock market. People are, are trend followers. But you have these short sellers who are like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm really losing a lot of money now. My my prime broker uh, is not going to stand for this. I need to to trim my position. And you trim your position by purchasing the stock. So it, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy if there's a strong enough move, which is really what what ha that's that's how GameStop became the most traded security on the on the planet or one of the, the ways that it, it did and why that rally and the rally in the other meme stocks was so explosive. Uh, but. In that case, the story was backwards because people who understood that basically specifically targeted uh, the stocks because they were sultry. They, they targeted them because they were bad stocks. There were stocks that were it was so widely agreed upon that they were bad stocks that short sellers felt very, very confident in selling them short. And they were so unglamorous that uh, at the time, at least, you know, now they are, they're glamorous on Reddit, I guess. But that, they were so unglamorous that no one was it was like, this is not Tesla. This is a, a video game chain based in malls. It's going to go bust, and it's it's business. It's it's completely toast. It's like Blockbuster two years before Blockbuster went out of business. So there's there's really very little risk in betting against this. And, I was and to say, it's a bad company. We understood that short selling is done by people who are betting long on the market. They're not they're not looking out for doom. Most short selling is done, and the funds that really took the big hits in this case too, uh, funds that that primarily own stocks that they think are going to go up, but they they offset their positions by like, you know, maybe they, they think that Best Buy is going to do great and GameStop is going to do horribly. And and that's a pair trade. And then they think that they're neutral and that they'll they'll they're actually taking the the cash they got from selling one stock short and investing it in purchase of another stock. So they're like building this leverage into their portfolio, but it, and it works 95% of the time, and then 5% of the time it, it ends, uh, ends badly for them. And it ended very badly for a couple of funds in, in the, the story that I read about. I was going to say, the, the short sellers were looking at bad businesses and a bad industry with a bad overall um, macro backdrop. They said, well, right. you know, hard to imagine how you could lose, what, a bunch of kids on the internet are going to go bid this thing up to infinity? And then obviously, and 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 they did. There was a bit of hubris, you know, obviously on the from the professionals because they were talking about it. You know, you go through these these message boards, and they're specifically talking about mechanically 
how to get the most bang for the buck. So just to point out, I mean, this is like a little bit of market history, but the, the reason that, that I found this initially so incredible, I wrote to my publisher right away and said, this is going to be a huge story before it, it really was uh, being written about, was because effectuating um, a short squeeze and effectuating something called a corner, which is like in a really extreme example of a short squeeze, has been Ill illegal. To do it intentionally has been illegal for uh, about a century. Uh, the securities laws passed in the wake of the, the 1929 crash made it illegal. It made it illegal. Let's say you, you and I, uh, Benjamin, you know, run uh, separate hedge funds and we see uh, that a, a third hedge fund is, is very, very short the stock. And we're like, oh, we're going to squeeze this guy. Let's collude and buy enough of the stock to, to create a squeeze. You can't, I mean, you can't go above a certain percentage without filling out certain forms. But if enough of us buy enough in collusion, then we'll, we'll make a ton of money and we'll have to pay any price. That used to happen all the time in the 19th century and the early 20th centuries until it was outlawed. But what happened in, in this case is that you can't go after 500,000 people on, on Reddit who were sitting in mom's basement, you know, trading through the Robinhood accounts. And, and it wasn't even illegal, really, because they weren't colluding. It was, it was all spelled out there. And, you know, I, you know, I spoke with people who, who lost billions of dollars in, in this case. And like, they were like, yeah, we were aware of it. They claimed that they were aware of it, but they didn't take it seriously. I don't know if they were really even aware of it. They, it's just not the sort of place that they looked for fundamental cues. It wasn't a group of people they took seriously. Uh, and then, that, then all of a sudden they did. In the book, you have this great quote, which is, it was like shooting fish in a barrel, but the fish started shooting back. Why don't you explain what you mean by that? Sure. That's a quote by John Hempton, who's a, um, a respected short seller from uh, Australia, who was talking about the environment just generally in, in 2020. So, you know, what the, the interesting thing to me about the story is not just the, the short squeeze that happened, but all the societal and financial forces that came together. And so you... You had all these young people um, going into the stock market. You had in excess of 10 million new brokerage accounts opened by people who had never had financial accounts before, other than maybe a bank account, uh, getting into stock trading. And the reason that it happened was, was complicated. One is that all of a sudden commissions at every broker in late 2019 went to zero. Then you had the pandemic hit and people basically locked down and spending 13 hours a day looking at their phones, young people, especially with nothing to do, no social life. Then they got stimulus checks, then they had enforced savings. And they had all of a sudden they had more liquid net worth than they had ever had. It wasn't a, a lot, you know, individually, but put together across, you know, 50 or 60 million people, it was a lot of money. And, and you had young men, especially who in the past year to year and a half had really gotten into gambling basically on their phones. All these forces created the, the dry kindling for it. And the, the generation that did this, uh, you know, their formative experience was the, the global financial crisis of 2008, 2009. They were, none of them were really old enough to be affected, to have had money lost, but they saw their parents lose money in their brokerage accounts or in their 401ks or lose their homes or lose their jobs. And the, the common uh, narrative was that it was Wall Street's fault. And in particular, hedge fund managers on Wall Street, they were the sort of the cartoon villains. And then if you want to be more specific, people who sold stock short and they were selling stock short like AMC and GameStop that were central to their, their childhoods and teenage years. You know, they, I've got three sons 
I, I can't tell you how many times I've been to GameStop for them to buy and swap games and things like that. They don't go there anymore because like I said, it's like Blockbuster. It's sort of, it's, it's a non-entity, but so it, it, these were companies that meant something to them, even though they were not doing well at all at the time, they were uh, both headed for bankruptcy. Clearly they have not made money in years. Um, but you know, and so all the ingredients came together for these specific stocks to be not just bid up because they're, they're heavily sold short. And so they were discussing on these boards and clearly there were some people who were financially sophisticated who said, Hey, this is a gamma squeeze. This is how you do a gamma squeeze where now that you're allowed to trade options for, you know, zero commission, here's how an option works. If you buy this type of specific option, then you create, uh, the most, uh, artificial buying pressure, because then the options dealers, once the price starts to rise, if it's uh, a short dated, uh, far out of the money put, then it, or call, then it'll cost you very little money. You can buy lots of contracts, but once it starts to rise, there's you know these, these Greek letters, Delta, Gamma, Theta, uh, Rho, that are in the Black-Scholes option pricing formula. And because of the models that they have, they will mechanically have to start buying the stock too. They don't care. They're just hedging their, their bet. They're not trying to make a stock go up, but you can put a thousand dollars down and that, that options dealer might have to purchase ultimately $50,000 worth of, uh, of this stock if it goes up enough. And then if enough of us do it all at the same time, then it'll become a sort of crescendo. It's not a way to make money. It's not like a state. They, it's not alchemy. They didn't figure out a way for them all to make money. They mostly lost money as a matter of fact, but they found out a great way to, to make markets move around in a crazy way, which was just as satisfying. And for some people, they thought they were going to make money. And some did, obviously. <laughs> they didn't all lose money. But it, it's not a, I'm not giving you like a, a blueprint for success. Like, don't, don't do this at home. But it, they, they figured out how to really create havoc in markets. Well, Keith, I, I, want, I want to point out a specific word that Spencer mentioned, which is they were just hedging their bets, right? Uh, and two of those words actually don't really go together. First is hedging and the second is just. Um, so Keith, maybe you can explain to me, what's the difference between short selling and hedging? Aren't, aren't these the same thing? Classically, uh, when people say short selling, they're talking about a speculation that the price is going to go down and maybe a very warranted one, right? If you look at uh, AMC and GameStop, as I said, bad, bad businesses and a bad industry with a bad macro backdrop headed, you know, clearly headed to bankruptcy. So you're just, you're just bad, you're making a directional bet on the price. Um, when, when you think of hedging, particularly in the commodities context, is you're obliged to have long position, let's say in the physical, let's say you buy a, um, a shipload full of iron ore in Australia and it takes a few weeks to sell it to, to, the, uh, to the smelter. You don't really want to be betting on the price of iron ore if the price of iron ore drops a few percentage points, you're going to lose more than the amount of profit you stand to make by being the delivery uh, you know, person. So you go short an equal amount of iron ore in, let's say, the futures market or some other market like that. So now you have the hedge position. You're long in one market, you're short in another. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you knew that, but the word just for me is, is kind of a not a trigger word, but it's a red flag word. And when people say, oh, you just had, usually with a greasy wave of the hand, um, they think that that's really simple um, and it isn't. And there can be all kinds of little counterintuitive behaviors, asymmetries, um, bizarre corner cases as options head into expiration. Um, if anybody's trying to squeeze the market, other unbeknownst to you, 
I imagine just like the hedge funds that were short billions of dollars of this stuff, the people that are hedging their iron ore uh, shipments aren't necessarily following the Reddit boards all day long. And all of a sudden you get a bunch of, you know, slightly resentful, angry kids that suddenly have a bunch of disposable income in their pocket and decide that they want to go, you know, and kind of mess with you. Um, right. Then all kinds of, you know, bad things can happen. Um, but hedging is a, is a necessary part of so many different businesses, certainly in the commodities trade, but I think in finance too, as, as Spencer pointed out, if you're the market maker and someone wants to buy a call option that's way out of the money on games, well, you sell it to them and you price it and you have a model that says this is what you should charge for it. And then you hedge. So you're really just trying to make it market maker spread. And then if the market goes screwy, you find that suddenly you could be drowning in something that you thought you'd make uh, you know, a few basis points, and now you're suddenly losing several percentage points. Um, and, uh, you know, there's no easy way out of it at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's exactly right, Keith. And I mean, I just would point out the, the further nuances that you, you had two kinds of hedging here. You had the hedge funds, which beside their name, don't always hedge, right? <laughs> where they had an imperfect hedge, right? They were like, let's go long this good retailer and short the bad retailer. Then if all bad retailers have a good year or a bad year, we're kind of even and then we'll just capture the difference. That's an imperfect hedge because strange things happen, right? The bad one went up 4,000% and the good one stay, you know, stayed where it was. Um, you don't, that's not really in the realm of possibility uh, as far as when you, you know, when you entered that trade. And so that's why they, they got blown up. I mean, Gabe Plotkin lost $6 billion in four days of his investors' money. Then you had the other type of hedging, which was the more mechanical type of hedging, which is the options uh, example that you pointed out where those guys, they could lose money sometimes, but they're, the options dealers made a lot of money. The and that's that's really, the, that's why I call my book The Revolution That Wasn't, is because it was seen as this blow against Wall Street. And most of Wall Street is made up of, of businesses that just want to transact with you. They don't, they're not taking a, a directional bet at all. They're not like the hedge funds that were at the center of the story. That And and that's why the the headlines that came out at first were very misleading. Like, Wall Street gets a black eye, tables are turned. And it's not the case at all. It was like a great, great month for Wall Street writ large because the people who just sell the options, like, you know, they're, some, some of them may have just, you know, gotten wrong-footed, but generally they, they made very, very fat profits. And the market makers and the brokers that basically that, that charged $0 commission but then sold the trades to the options dealers and the market makers and stocks, they made a, a fortune during this time. So they enriched Wall Street. They just they just made a couple of people poor, but they made other people, you know, the dollar amounts are are totally out of whack in terms of the benefit to the, the loss to Wall Street. So like you you angry at Wall Street, but like you're feeding the machine, you know, by by doing this. And that's whenever you you point that out, I mean the amount of kind of hate mail and stuff, you go like on Amazon and you know, if you, anyone re re reads my book and is inclined to write something even neutral about it, I'd be very, and actually read it, I'd be very appreciative because it's like full of like these people who didn't even read it, who are like very angry about, about this being pointed out, who's paying you, you're a shill, you know, I just get paid by <laughs> the Wall Street Journal. But like, there's a lot of anger when you point out that like, you, you guys, I mean, I, 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 they're kind of victims, but I mean, you know, they're, you know, you, you point out to people that you're not, you, you weren't that clever, like you really waste yeah. a lot money and it wound up in some guy's pocket on wall street not you know Jordan, not, Jordan not a it makes people really angry to to even suggest that 
Jordan Peterson has a great expression that I love. That is a low resolution position that when someone says, well, this is good for Wall Street or bad for Wall Street, they make no differentiation between the market maker, the broker, the bank that lent the broker the uh, you know the margin because there's you know things are settled T plus two so there's some credit involved that was also part of the Robinhood stories I recall um, they just think okay it's good for Wall Street bad for Wall Street and they have a very low resolution sort of bumper sticker level you know sort of grasp of things mm-hmm. um, we're no we're no uh, strangers to getting hate mail for pointing out the simple mechanics I write an awful lot about how the gold futures market works. Mm-hmm. And people assume, right, so the futures market is a very zero sum. If I buy a futures contract and you sell a futures contract and the price goes up $1 per ounce, then the clearinghouse will move a dollar out of your account into my account. And if it goes down, then it will move the dollar the other direction. And so they assume that anyone who's short a futures contract is making a directional bet, um, you know, against gold or against silver, which, I, you know, I write a lot about. And... Um, you know, nobody in their right mind would take a long-term, multi-decade short position on any commodity, certainly not gold and silver. Um, and so what they're actually doing is arbitraging. It's, it's you know, borrow at LIBOR, buy the spot metal, sell it as a, you know, futures contract, and then lock in a spread, which is now a couple of percentage points, um, you know, after, after paying, uh, you know, interest expense and everything else. And they're just in it to just pocket that spread. And you can look at movements in that spread and glean, you know, some insight as to what's going on in the market. And people just get angry at just a, a mechanic, a description of the mechanics. Like this person is doing this in response to this incentive, and this is how much. This is exactly we can calculate to the penny exactly how much money they make. And if you annualize that, you can quote that as a percentage. You can compare it to LIBOR or so for whatever you want. It's okay. This is relatively attractive to do this trade right now. Oh. You know, the market changed tomorrow. It's not attractive. You'd be better off just parking in the T-bills. And, um, you know, uh, it doesn't happen so much anymore. I think everybody knows my, my view on it. But, you know, you just generate a lot of hate mail because people would rather believe that there's some dark cabal, you know, Wall Street. People call me a shill for the Fed for, for writing about this kind of stuff. Who's paying you? It's yeah. the same echoes of what you just said a moment ago. And yeah. um, it's just the mechanics of it, you know. So yeah, no. not making not making a lot of friends on um on, on these in these chat rooms. I mean, it is it is what it is. You know, it's um I I feel like I mean part of and I, I've written two books really targeted at, at individual investors and I've been a written for a mass market audience in the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere, Barons, you know, for mom and pop. And so I always I feel good when I'm kind of explaining something or demystifying something because Let's put it. I mean, Wall Street likes to mystify things. That's that's part of its its arsenal. The more mysterious uh, it it seems, the more complicated it seems. The more you can can charge, you know, and the more you can obfuscate. And so, you know, it's I, I feel good if I've explained something to to someone. Um, but then, you know, of course, there there are pe- a lot of people who don't appreciate that. Um, but it's <laughs> what are you going to do? You know, you can't. You're not going to make some people happy. I I, I don't. I've kind of given up arguing with people. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to patiently explain something, but then it just it, it works out maybe 5% of the time. It's a lot of energy on your part. And, you know, to, you know, makes the scales fall from someone's eyes. All right, Spencer, I need you to make the scales fall from my eyes. And I want you to even write your hate mail at the end of it. So 
When I was reading the book, you wrote that sh short sellers actually play an essential function because they ensure that an overpriced or even fraudulent company or stock don't get into general index funds. So explain what that means. I mean, yeah, I was an investor in GameStop. So, you know, that was something happening over there. Why should I care? You should care. I mean, so most investors should um, buy uh, buy index funds or, or buy a very, if you're going to buy individual stocks, then buy uh, a really diverse group of stocks and own them for a, a long time, hopefully more conservative stocks that dividend payers and things like that. That's my, my personal advice to people. But index funds are, are so cheap these days, uh, broad diversified index funds, that it's the right choice for 90% of people. Warren Buffett, you know, has said, you know, that he's, he's going to, you know, when he passes away, uh, advise um, his, his widow to keep her money in index funds, you know, so if that, you know, the greatest investor of all time is saying it, then, uh, then it's probably good advice. Um, yes, but these stocks, I, we're talking about an, an Enron, or we're talking about, um, I don't know, something like Carvana, right, which is down, you know, fell 97% last year. Things that, you know, that not, some things are fraudulent, some things, most of these things are not fraudulent, but they're overhyped, you know, the people who kind of are, are looking for a flash in the pan have bid them up to obscene levels. Um, the, allowing them to get to those obscene levels in a, uh, you know, in an environment where it's difficult, where it's very risky for short sellers to bet against them is a bad environment for individual investors. So you are being, if the price is more correct, let's put it this way, like I, I, I always have like a, my college roommate and, and neighbors and people like that telling me that they put a bit of money or their broker put them into, usually they decided themselves to buy something that I, I happen to have a very strong feeling and I've been right in most of these cases is just a bubble waiting to pop. And we can go you know, back through greatest hits, uh, 3D printing and dot coms and things like that. And you kind of give people advice that I don't really think you should do that. And people tend not to take my, my advice. Uh, they didn't, don't take my advice now, even though I've you know, written for the Wall Street Journal for a long time. And they were slightly more likely to take my advice when I was a managing director at a, an investment bank in equity research because I wore nice suits and, and made a lot more money then. You know? So I guess I had more credibility. But generally people, they, they'll come up with a, you know, you'll kind of give them advice or they'll even be asking you for advice and you'll tell them and then they'll, they'll come up with a counter argument. So it, it's, it's very difficult to talk people off the ledge, but at least what these short sellers do is they puncture these bubbles um, before they get really, really big. That's the service that they do. They're not doing it out of the kindness of their hearts, but they're out there looking for things that are clearly overvalued or, or probably fraudulent and, um, and puncturing the bubble earlier than it would have normally been punctured. Enron eventually would have, have collapsed had uh, Jim Chanos not, you know, kind of made a big short bet against it and pointed it out to Bethany McLean, who wrote an article that kind of started the ball rolling downhill. But, you know, investigative journalists and short sellers um, probably saved a lot of people uh, a lot of money that they otherwise would have lost because it would have lasted a longer time. So that's, that, that is a, a service that they provide. They are part of the ecosystem. Just like, um, you know, if you want to like, you know, bird, they're also often called like vultures, right? I mean, it's a kind of a nasty word because we, we don't really like vultures. They, they eat rotting flesh. But if you didn't have vultures, you'd have like, you know, dead squirrels all over the street, right? I mean, you still, 
even if you don't like them, you know, they're, they're in that ecosystem and, and they're doing a good thing um, because it would be unpleasant if they didn't. Right. So, so maybe I can summarize because this is what I understood. Let's say a bunch of kids on the internet or for whatever reason, someone starts bidding up the price of Tesla or Carvana or any kind of bubble stock or meme stock. Bitcoin might even be a great example. All of a sudden, there's this Bitcoin craze. People are in love with Bitcoin. And the next thing you know, Bitcoin is one of the companies on the S&P 500. Oh, my gosh, there's a Bitcoin exchange on the S&P 500, which means that your grandma, me, everyone else who is you know, buying this kind of general diverse fund of strong kind of in the you know, companies that will be in here for the long term. Now there's you know a Bitcoin guy kind of jumping in the middle of the fray there. And so a short seller can kind of pop that bubble early and say, hey, you're not one of these companies that deserves to be in grandma's index fund. Is, is that right? Basically, yes. Although let me tell you a little anecdote. Um, I don't own individual stocks because of, of my job, because I edit so many uh, columns about so many different companies. I just don't want there to be the appearance of impropriety. So I, I own mainly exchange traded funds. And one of the funds that I own, uh, it's, ticker, it's a good one. I mean, I'm not giving a recommendation. It's IWN, which is a small cap value fund. Um, and I happened to take a look at this fund that I owned. And lo and behold, the top two holdings uh, a couple of months after the GameStop bubble were GameStop and AMC. Yeah. So these, these indexes are constructed in a very clumsy way. They were most definitely not value stocks, but because they were in this index uh, and, and because the index is, is only changed periodically and was not changed for a while, I mean, they were by no stretch of the imagination value stocks, but I guess they had been before, even though the, the kind of the bubble had mostly burst at that point. They were so much bigger than they were before that you, you weren't owning a ton of it. But I mean, I, I was kind of surprised that I was invested indirectly in those two companies that I was so, still so skeptical about. Pardon my, my chuckling, but there's just a certain irony to that. And um, sometimes in my more philosophical moments, I say that uh, being in business is nothing more than irony appreciation training. That's right. <laughs> To a person who's written so much about that, and then you come home and you read the prospectus uh, of your, uh, you know, index fund, and you know there are these two, uh, you know, these two culprits. You know, like <laughs> I can just imagine, you know, tearing my hair out if I if I came home and read that. Yeah, so, well, it was a little late at that point, so I obviously <clears throat> I tend not to be very active either, and so I just kind of just waited for them to to drop out of the index. But yeah, it was kind of. Um, I, I was surprised to say at least, but I shouldn't have been because I know how these indexes work. They're not, uh, they're not perfect. That's why some people are, if, if you're knowledgeable uh, and, and disciplined, you, you might be better off. Um, let's say you want to own value stocks, just look, you know, go to some site or some expert or do a screen yourself and then buy a handful of value stocks yourself and, and own them directly. And then you won't wind up indirectly owning something that that, you know, because that, that's the problem with capitalization weighted indices is that the thing that has most recently gone up represents the biggest chunk of it, which is not necessarily the thing that you want to, to own. Um, there, there are other ways of constructing stock indexes that are a little bit better, like equal weighted indexes and things like that, that get around that problem that I wrote about in, in that first book of mine, uh, actually outperformed for that very reason, because they don't, they're not kind of, don't, they don't have that um, that mechanical problem, but, uh, but that's, it's a small difference.
So Spencer, you said, oh, I, I checked my stock or I checked the prospectus on CTF and, and lo and behold, there were these companies in here. Okay, so what I heard you say is you want me to check every single day, check my stocks. Isn't that right? Isn't that a great way to make money? No, it is explicitly not a great way to make money. As a matter of fact, um, there are, are two things where there's very, very clear, overwhelming evidence. Uh, I will accept no counter argument uh, are uh, negatively correlated with your returns. The more you trade, I mean, even looking at commissions and everything, backing all that stuff out, if you were to just divide traders into deciles or quintiles or whatever, say who has traded the most and who's traded the least, um, there's a very, very clear and significant outperformance among those investors who trade the least. And a corollary to that, it's also been shown that those investors who check their investments less frequently tend to do well. And the reason for that is a psychological effect called myopic loss aversion. You know, we, we hate to open up our brokerage account to see that our, the stock or the fund that we bought has lost money. And because um, prospect theory uh, for which um, Daniel Kahneman won the Nobel Prize uh, shows that we are more harmed uh, emotionally by losses than we're pleased by gains, where uh, it makes people more likely to sell. That's why you have this crescendo of selling when markets are near a bottom and then very little buying on the way up. People buy too late. And so they, they really hurt their, their long-term performance through these psychological foibles. And to be, you know, people are just are wired, wired to survive on the savannah at, in 100,000 BC. They're not wired to be investors. They're, they're actually very poorly wired to be investors. So all of our sort of emotional reactions that kept our DNA in the gene pool um, are, are exactly the wrong things, unfortunately. And so the more you can short circuit that, the better you will do as an investor. The evidence is, is crystal clear on that. Uh, if you can basically buy a bunch of stocks or funds, put them in a drawer, not check your phone, not check your statement, you know, automatically reinvest, perhaps automatically rebalance them. There are a lot of funds that will do that for you uh, on autopilot. You will do better, I, I predict, than 85 to 90 percent of individual investors. You'll do better than 80 percent of professional investors uh, who would charge you money for the service. So it's it, it is one of the the easiest things you can do to improve your long run investment returns. And if if you improve your returns by a percentage point or one and a half percentage points, which is very likely with the kind of lazy approach that uh, that I'm describing, then you know over a, a career of saving that could be two times or four times as much money in your nest egg. So it's it's you know compound interest works that way. These these small differences really do add up. So what I'm hearing is that being cheap and being lazy can actually be beneficial. I'm calling my parents after this podcast ends and I'm going to let them know. Okay. How about, how about another question? I'm 25. Maybe there's someone who's 55 who's listening to this. Should we have different allocation in stock? Should we be thinking about investing differently or should our portfolios look the exact same? It doesn't matter. It, it, I got, I'm going to put a, a, an asterisk on that. It, the conventional wisdom is that you, you should be more risk averse. So you should be, the closer you are to needing the money, whatever it's for, the more risk averse you should be because of the, the huge, you know, that's why stocks deliver this excess return is that you have to stomach this grinding volatility. But it, it's not just that you have to deal with it emotionally. You know, if your goal, if your spending goal is five years away, for example, a college education, you know, you pay four years of tuition for your kid and your kid is, um, is 16 years old. 
you don't want to be 100 percent in in stocks with their college fund because um it, it has happened and it very well could happen that the value of, the, of that account when it comes time to draw on it will be 30 percent lower on the other hand you could be 80 years old and have a portfolio that's very heavily invested in stocks because you don't need the money because you you have so much money and your intention is to leave it to your children and your grandchildren whose time horizon is much longer. So there's no one size fits all. That's why this sort of this general formula that used to say like, oh, you know, take your, your age minus 60 or whatever, and then that should be your, your allocation to stocks you know, is, is a very kind of crude rule because everyone's situation is different. That's, what, that's the one thing financial advisors are really good for that and talking you off the ledge is basically tailoring your, uh, your investments to your specific risks and, and needs and your temperament too, right? Because if you're gonna really, really, if, if you can't deal with losing 30% of your money on paper for a few years, you know, it, it might take many years for, for that to be recovered, then risk less money, you know, then just give up some of the, the potential gain from stocks. Like if, if it's gonna cause you to do something that's just gonna destroy your, uh, your returns in the long run because it's just so painful, and if you can't visualize that and, and deal with it, then then don't be don't take as big of a risk. Just just don't be in the stock market or or have a much smaller allocation to stocks. Um, that's it's as simple as that, because, you know, we're emotional creatures and we're not wired for this. Right. OK, I, I had a, a word there that you mentioned, which was compound interest. So I, I've heard of this. You know, my grandparents talk about the stuff, compound interest. I, I really never understood it because when I look at my savings account, it looks eerily similar to my checkings account, which is that interest rates are super low. There's no way to save money now. If I saved, you know, 100% of my paycheck, the compound interest is essentially nothing. Shouldn't I just speculate all my money in the stock market? I mean, that's really the only way to make returns nowadays. Isn't that right? Well, that, that happened to be a, an essential ingredient in this GameStop squeeze is that Interest rates now we're, we're suddenly for the first time in more than a decade, we have, um, you know, fairly decent. You can get a pretty good CD rate. You can get a pretty good rate just buying a, a one year um, one year T-bill. Uh, but that that's only recently become the case. And during the time, certainly that GameStop mania took hold, interest rates were, were at zero. You were really earning not close to nothing um, by having your money sit in cash. And what that does, both psychologically and, and really in terms of of finance theory too, is it makes these like lottery ticket like payoffs much more attractive because there's a concept in finance called duration. Duration is basically, you know, it's not just how much money am I gonna make on something, but when is that profit going to be? And if I'm showing you a company that has some great new product, but man, in five years or in 10 years, it's gonna be making money and it's gonna revolutionize waffle makers, right? This is gonna be like the, the best waffle maker ever, you know, you get in now on the ground floor, you know, you're, you're more likely to, to buy something like that when you're not making any money in your cash than when you have an alternative. When you have an alternative, then you're more likely to view as an, an alternative to that, that okay interest rate you're getting on a risk-free thing like a bank deposit and look at a dividend paying stock that's kind of, you know, makes money, but it's kind of boring and isn't growing very fast or maybe not growing at all. So um, a low interest rate environment favors moonshots, which is was one part of the, the craziness that we began to unravel a little over a year ago in the market and, and, and probably still unraveling to do. 
And, and that's and that's opportunity cost, right? So I look at my savings account and I say, listen, if I move this cash, it's not like I'm going to lose anything anyways. But if the bank said, park your cash with us and we'll give you a 5% return, a 10% return, a 20% return. Well, you'd really have to convince me about that moonshot before, you know, I took that cash out of there. But with 0% interest rates, eh, what's the harm, right? It's not like I'm making any money anyways, right? Keith, what do you think? Exactly. This, this, and I mean, Benjamin, you're very much in this generation. So I, I assume that, you know, you and, and your friends get together and talk about this. It is really hard to, um, to get a nest egg, to buy a house. Like this generation is much, 30 year olds today are much less likely to own a house than 30 year olds were 30 years ago or 60 years ago, right? So then the previous generation, uh, it is, they have student loans. They don't really see the prospect of having a good nest egg. So if you don't have the pro that, that that's why people play the lottery, really. That's why poor people, they, you know, like people say all kinds of nasty things about um, poor people who play the lottery. It's a tax on a numeracy and whatever. And that's not really true. Um, you know, I mean, my, my parents were, you know, didn't have any money at all. They just played really with the clothing on their backs. You know, like my dad used to play the lotto because he, at least he could dream. Like, I think he understood exactly that what his chances were and how negative his return was. He wasn't pouring a lot of his money into it. But, you know, if you, you basically, you, you don't see a lot of prospect of, of ever being wealthy, but you dream of being wealthy, then you'll bet on these, you'll make these bad bets basically, because how else are you ever going to get there? Um, it's not, logical but it, it makes sense to them it's psychologically it's true to them um and 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 most people who play the lottery i think roughly understand the that you know it's not like an investment you know in the sense that you know the probabilities are in your in your favor the stock market is, that's why i don't like people comparing the stock market to a casino or a lottery because the stock market is actually a vehicle for building wealth uh it's not a casino the casino is, is a vehicle for more you play the more likely you are to wind up with zero I wanted to add one thing um, to the low interest rates in the in the stock market, and that's the other side, and it's another one of those, you know, you might call it a bad hedge, but you know, if if you're the CFO of a public company, and you can borrow at two and a half percent, and your stock has a dividend yield of more than two and a half percent, and also has an incentive program where you stand to make you know, life altering amounts of money if the share price were to go up and have certain thresholds, you could see how the CFO is saying, well, we're gonna do a, we're gonna borrow, we're gonna sell some bonds uh, to raise a billion dollars so that we can uh, buy our own shares. And the cheaper the interest rate is to that, uh, to that company, the more that they can bid the share price up. And it's an arbitrage between either the earnings, either the earnings yield or the dividend yield, depending on how they might look at it. But dividend yields a no-brainer. If you're borrowing at two and a half and your dividend yield is three, there's just a very straight, now imperfectly hedged, mm -hmm. right? There's some serious risks in doing that. But you're borrowing at two and a half to buy uh, your own shares, which are paying three. Um, you can't do that until your shares are paying two and a half because you bet them up. I, I'm going I'm to um, disagree with you a little bit there. I'm going to get all finance geek on you because... The, there are definitely cases, like you mentioned, where where companies got um, in, into a situation of distress because they had been borrowing a lot of money to repurchase their own shares. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. That's that's the, the rarity. I mean, the thing is that there's there's an ideal amount of, of borrowing for um, for a, a, a company. So the the way that a company is balanced, 
balance sheet, there's, there's, I, I think there's a few different kind of ratios to, to look at. One is what can they reinvest their money in? So if the company has generated cash this year, do they reinvest in their business? And what kind of return are they going to get for building one more factory or renovating something or whatever versus what kind of return is there generally in the stock market? If the return in the business is, is suboptimal, then they're doing shareholders a favor by whether through a dividend or a share buyback, paying it out. And if, they're, um, if their borrowing capacity is barely used, uh, they, they, can, they can borrow more money. Debt is tax deductible and the cost of debt is lower than the cost of, of equity. So there, there are companies out there where you're like, you know what, this company should really, not to the, the extent that they leave themselves exposed and take a risk, but they, they would do uh, a good thing by borrowing at two and a half percent, paying out money to their shareholders, uh, whoever takes is on the other side of that, that, that buyback, who's going to reinvest it at the stock market's long term, you know, eight and a half percent. So it's not, it, it's not clear cut. I mean, obviously there are, you're right that there are companies that, and, and the executives have stock options. And so they, they're really bad at doing this. That's the other thing is like, they're, they're very, very bad at making the decision. And so, and sometimes they take risks, look at Bed Bath & Beyond, which almost went bankrupt months after it had done this big stock buyback. And now they're basically, they've, they've gone into this like death spiral financing. Bed Bath & Beyond is, I happen to know a lot about it because it was one of the meme stocks, you know, um, you know, so that was, that was really dumb. But, but in a lot of cases doing buybacks and even borrowing to do buybacks is not dumb. It's, it's just sound financing. Um, to- I'm not arguing what, you know, whether it's smart or dumb and what the ideal ratios are. My, my observation was simply the lower the interest rate, the more the incentive for a company to do that. And especially when the, incent- when the interest rate, when their actual cost of interest gets meaningfully below their dividend yields, then um, it's you know, very tempting for them to do that, especially if the C-suite is compensated by you know, some formula based on the share price or they have options, which affect the sure. same thing. So yeah, there's, there are that, should they, in some cases, maybe yeah. they should, other cases, maybe they shouldn't. But every time the interest rate falls, it's, a, it's an additional incentive compared to where it was the day before. And so a falling interest rate, this is a big theme in my writing, a falling interest rate tends to push all asset prices up. Um, and, uh, you know, the so-called wealth effect, and I could go on and on about all the perversity that is enabled and incentivized by it. Right. Well, I think at least the way I think about it, right, is that all else equal, sometimes we use this term in in economics, all else equal, if you lower the interest rate, you know, what happens on the other side? You know, Spencer, we talk a lot about zombie firms. These are companies who who make profits, they make revenues, but it's not enough money to even pay the interest expense on their debts. So they're supposed to be debt, right? They're, They're supposed to be companies that are long defunct or long bankrupt. And yet, because of, you know, really forgiving credit markets, and really low interest rates, these companies kind of hold on, they survive. So they're alive, but they're dead. So they're called zombie firms. And obviously the interest rate is one of the huge factors deciding either whether these zombie firms continue to live on or if they become a zombie firm, right? Like on the margin, you were a healthy, you know, living firm, everything was okay. And then the rate ticks down and lo and behold, you're a zombie firm now, or you were saved from that status, right? So it's that kind of marginal change, which either turns you into a zombie firm or maybe makes a share uh, buyback more profitable. And it's these changes on the margin, interest rates being a huge change. Absolutely. And, that, and that's and, and basically the that's why interest rates are described as financial gravity. 
um, you know, they, they affect everything. The, the risk-free rate, uh, which is basically what uh, the rate on, on treasuries uh, or the overnight rate that the Fed charges, uh, pays to banks, um, affects everything in the financial system. But what's so fascinating today is that you, because you had such a long period of extremely low and even zero interest rates, um, or at least, you know, overnight rates were zero, and, uh, and then bond yields, you had, at one point you had $18 trillion of sovereign debt in the world with negative yields, you know, which is like this, you know, people, you go back 20 years ago and tell people about that, they'd be like, that's not possible. That can't, that can't be like you're, what you're describing can't exist. And it, it did exist for, for quite a while. So um, that, that created all sorts of distortions. But even today, where you have all this spreading about interest rates uh, being, being high and, and, you know, and, and possibly causing an accident, interest rates are still negative in real terms today. So, you know, the short term uh, interest rates are still well below uh, the rate of inflation, whereas they were they were positive before the financial crisis. So uh, in terms of people kind of fretting about it, kind of causing a financial accident, it was, of course, it could happen. But interest rates might have to be like a, a bit higher to really, really squeeze the economy because they are negative They're You know, you can you, you borrow money, you're being bailed out by by and you have a business where you're selling goods and services, you're being bailed out by inflation. You're, you're still very happy to borrow money at these rates. I, I know Keith definitely has some thoughts on that. But when you said that the interest rate is kind of this gravity of the financial world, and we've been living in low or zero gravity for, let's say, you know, five, 10 years, who knows how long, you know, then these kind of creatures start to evolve. They have, you know, uh, thinner bones, or they can kind of have feet that are better for floating and bouncing around. And then when the gravity generator, you know, I, I know it's not a lever really, um, but when the lever kind of pulls back to a little higher gravity, again, 5% is maybe not so high, but, you know, higher gravity than these creatures are built or evolved or used to, well, those little pads that they had to kind of bounce around, when those touch hard ground, they break, right? And you're like, oh my gosh, look at all these ankles breaking, or, you know, look at everyone's hair that used to look so good, now it looks horrible in, in a little higher gravity. And now you, you're saying we're, we're at risk of an accident. So Keith, I'll, I'll send it to you. Maybe, maybe we're at risk for an accident. What do you think about this? So I think, you know, a lot of people would talk about leverage in the system. I would talk about that there's a, an arbitrage between the return on capital, especially at the margin and the interest rate. And so if, if interest has been falling for four decades, it's pulling down marginal return on capital. Then you raise interest rates up, you find there's an awful lot of farm, firms whose return on capital is lower than their cost of capital. Um, and I think that's the, uh, that's the backdrop for the potential accident. Um, so, you know, I'm, Spencer, I'm, I'm on record of saying, I think there's no question the Fed is gonna be forced to reverse itself when some, you know, the next incipient crisis happens. And, you know, it's hard, it's impossible to predict when, but something is, is coming at this point. Because, you know, and Ben, I like your analogy of all these creatures evolve in a zero G environment and the bones get thinner and lighter and, you know, they have all these, you know, tenderly bits and, you know, then you turn gravity back up and then suddenly, hey, it's not really that high. It's still only half the, what the gravity used to be, but it's more than enough to, you know, snap some ankles. So that's what I think is, is likely to happen. Um, but, you know, we'll see so far. They fold everything together. The, the biggest surprise for me, and I'm curious if you've looked at this or have an opinion, Spencer, is the spread between junk and treasuries has not really blown out at all. 
it's held very, you know, it's, it's held in a nice little uh, range. Um, you know, moved up a little bit. I think it's about a, a point and a quarter higher than it had been before the Fed started hiking, but nothing crazy has happened with that. And to, to me, it's a mystery. Why is that not blown out more than it has? Yeah, I mean, I, I spoke with a, a distressed debt expert just this morning about that and uh, said, like, do you see any signs of stress? He said, absolutely not, nowhere. Uh, junk spreads are at 400 basis points or four percentage points. Um, you know, above risk free, which is, you know, which is modest historically on the more modest side. So there's not uh, a, a lot of stress there. You, you are seeing, um, you know, this is why I tell people like you, you should like, you should read a, a, a newspaper. I know I'm talking my own book and talking my own employer, but, you know, if you look at, at the, the headlines today, obviously there is some fretting and like that. And what, what if it bleeds, it leads, but they, you, you, if you read what's on page one, you're not getting a, a sense of a, any impending doom. There might be something on page A12 um, that's giving you an inkling of the next thing that's that's going to break. That's where you always see it. Um, and I love kind of my weird hobby is uh, going back and, and reading newspapers around every kind of major financial top and, and bottom, going back as far as I, I can. And obviously no, no one saw it coming. There's always someone who says they saw it coming because they happened to have made the prediction at the time uh, and they just got lucky, kind of broken clock right twice a day. But if you if you look at what was in the back papers, there, there, there was there were signs. And so if I'm looking today, if I I guess maybe it's a self-fulfilling thing, you know, because I'm, I'm, I'm always looking for something to break. Look at the CMBS market, the commercial mar uh, mortgage backed securities, for example, where you have a lot of people who need to refinance these office buildings that are only half full, who are like, you know, this is just not worth it. I can't, I can't refinance this thing. I'm gonna, I'm gonna just hand the keys back. You know, that's a more than a trillion dollar market held by insurance companies and banks and, and pension funds and things like that. So there are things that are starting to, to creak for sure. Um, and the household balance sheets, that, that's part of the explanation is household balance sheets got so much healthier during the pandemic. Uh, and the low end, especially, usually when you have a, a, a whiff of a downturn, first of all, you have you don't have unemployment at a 53-year low, uh, and you don't have um, people who you know typically have you know don't have college educations, just high school education, or not even you know having money thrown at them. But today, you know there there's so much demand for the the type of of, of labor that someone who has less than a, a college education is willing to do and qualified to do, that their balance sheets are looking very good and they still have some money left from stimulus and things like that. So the, the typical people who tend to sort of be throwing up red flags aren't really throwing them up, although you are seeing some signs of it. For example, subprime auto defaults are now rising at a kind of an alarming rate. So, so maybe they're, they're blowing through those savings, but not just yet. And so that, that's, I think, one reason that, uh, that, that you're not seeing distress in, in, in junk, but you might still see it in some months down the, the line. And the, you mentioned the, you didn't put it in those terms with the inverted yield curve. You know, the, the yield curve is really a, has consistently sent very strong messages about the economy. And that's basically what short-term uh, treasuries yield versus what longer-term treasuries yield. And you're now close to a record in terms of the difference between what a three-month or a two-year um, Treasury will pay you, and what a ten-year Treasury will pay you. 
uh, in excess of 90 basis points yesterday. I haven't looked this morning. That, that has been a very reliable uh, recession signal because what it's saying is that people who are smart, people and bond traders are smarter than stock traders, I have to say. I mean, they're, they're, they're reading, reading the tea leaves much more carefully. They're much more mathematical, uh, less swayed by emotion. They're saying, yes, interest rates are high today, but there will be a need at some point in the not very distant future for the Fed to reverse course and start cutting again uh, because things are going to go badly, whether it's an accident like we we're discussing or just a, a downturn in the economy. And so the, the bond market has, has called recessions pretty accurately in the past, and it's saying that there's going to be one. You know, we did a uh, webinar yesterday, and um, we were talking about, or somebody asked me um, about, um, you know, unemployment and a, as, as a lagging indicator. And I said, um, let me put on my business manager hat as well as my economist hat. You know, if you look at all of the calls of recession that have occurred since let's say 2012 through uh, just before COVID, there was a number of them. And, you know, firms that still were smarting from 2008 had learned the lesson of 2008. He who lays off first lays off best. The longer you wait, the more, um, the, you know, the worse things get. And then you may have to do multiple layoffs, really killing your morale. You may run out of too much cash and then put the solvency of the firm, um, you know, at risk. And if you live early, then you're, you're much better. And so any firm that acted on that between, let's say, 2011, 2012, and early 2020 um, lived to regret it, where they would do a layoff. And then, you know, three to six months later, when everything's back to happy times, they're going back to the people they just laid off and begging them, please, would you come back? We'll give you a giant raise. We'll double your salary, all these kinds of things. And so now, which I think is quite different from any of the uh, head fakes that occurred in that, you know, eight or 10 year period, um, you know, companies, I think, are still more smarting from the lessons they learned, let's say, in 2015 and 2017, than their, you know, the, the memory of 2008 is a little bit more faded. And I think they're extremely reluctant to want to do layoffs. Um, and now, you, you know, it's, it's, it's starting to accelerate. But to me, that's one reason why, um, you know, unemployment in particular is a lagging indicator. Um, inverted yield curve, much more of a leading indicator, I think. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I, 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 I agree 100%. And I think that one thing is that the headlines don't match the reality on, on the ground when you're looking at the national level statistics today, because you're, you're seeing these headlines about um, um, Alphabet, which is Google's parent, you know, laying off all these workers, um, you know, Meta uh, laying off these people. Yeah, on, on the treadmill this morning, I saw Meta as announcing a big layoff this week. A third round, right? But, and, but then you look at the, uh, if you look at, well, we're gonna get jobs numbers um, this coming Friday, um, and, uh, and we'll see that. But so far we have, we have seen very, very strong payrolls growth, we've seen very low, historically low um, jobless claims. So that that is not showing up the national statistics. I guess it's not surprising if it's limited to a couple of industries, um, then that that those do not represent the entire country. Those are the companies that we read about. We, that's not your local supermarket. That's not your local barbershop who has a sign out looking for an experienced hairdresser and stuff like that. Um, the Chipotle here in my town is looking for people you know, as I sign up forever, you know, 16, 15 hour where my, my wife works, you know, they're, they're, she's going to get like a bonus for having, you know, uh, brought someone in because they're, they're really, really 
desperate for people to do like a not really fun job. So it, that it's it's a kind of a two track uh, economy. And so absolutely, like you said, it's it's a lagging indicator and it's a weird time. And they're stung by the the shortages that they they experienced in the middle of the the pandemic, I guess, you know, and so they're hoarding labor, if anything, uh, as as opposed to being forced to to lay off, you know, maybe they'll regret it. Um, low wage workers are very easy and cheap to lay off. Also, unfortunately, Google um, or, you know, Alphabet, I keep calling it Google, but Alphabet's median employee pay is the highest in the S&P 500. It's almost $300,000 uh, in terms of total compensation. So, um, yeah, so a company like that laying people off, uh, first of all, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a lot more money at, at, at stake. Things are actually getting kind of dicey. I, I my oldest boy is a, uh, you know, he still has a job, you know, he's a programmer, but he has a lot of friends who are in that business who are all nervous about their jobs all of a sudden. They're working for, you know, Amazon and places like that. And they're just lucky that they, they're feeling fortunate that they haven't been laid off. They're not really agitating for raises. They just, they just want to keep the job they have. We pay an ounce of gold for any referral that leads to hire. And we are looking to hire a software developer right now. Just yeah. to get that out there. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So I, I did want to get that out there, which is Spencer, we have an ounce of gold for you. If you refer the golden candidate, ha ha ha. Um, <laughs> but I wanted to talk now really quickly because I know we're running out of time. Um, I wanted to say we're, we're putting out this white paper called how not to think about gold. And one of the things you wrote in your book was wave of selling hits markets. And Keith, I know we talk about this for every seller, there's a buyer. And in your book, you said, listen, for, you know, they could easily change the headline to wave of buying hits markets, right? right. Um, and so we, we call this the famous buyer's fallacy. That There's lots of other fallacies that we go to. So we're going to be having a, um, this white paper called How Not to Think About Gold. I recommend you do it. And now I want to get to this lightning round because we've had so many things. Your book is so awesome. There's so many things we could get to. And I highly recommend everyone read the book. Um, there's not an ounce of gold for me if, if you do it, but uh, it, it will make me smile. But I want to do a really quick lightning round as we end here. So it's going to get some of the points of the book, some of the things we've talked about. I'll ask you the question. We'll start with you, Spencer. Keith, you'll go second. And just give me a quick thoughts on, on, on the lightning round question. Spencer, you can invest in any celebrity. Who would it be and why? Oh, man. Okay. <laughs> um, gosh, I, a year ago, I would have said Tom Brady before FTX. Um you know, I Patrick Mahomes, you know, he's, he's very down to earth, uh, very marketable guy. I'd, I'd invest in him. You know, he, he'd keep it simple. Okay. Patrick Mahomes, Keith, who are you investing? Um, I'm going to wait for um, Vanguard to come up with a celebrity index fund and just go that way. Okay. Smart. I like it. Cheap and lazy. Okay. Next one. Who will be vindicated Spencer, Jim Cramer or the reverse Jim Cramer fund? Interesting question. Yeah, we just last week, uh, uh, ETF called S Jim, short Jim Cramer. <laughs> as skeptical as, as I am about pundits, and it's, it's been shown, there have been studies done on Jim Cramer. It's he's slightly worse than a coin flip. I would not recommend purchasing an inverse uh, pundit because every, every dog has his day, and there's no such thing. Just like there's no such thing as talent in stock picking, really, or or, or very, it's very rare, and he doesn't have it. There's no such thing as anti-talent, so uh, I would not recommend um, doing that either. I, I would I would ignore pundits and and but also not bet against them. I think uh, paying for the privilege of doing that 
is, is not the best idea. Okay, Keith, reverse Jim Cramer fund. Are you sticking with Jim? I, I'm I'm with Spencer. I think just because, and if, and I haven't seen the statistic, but if if he's slightly worse than a coin toss, then shorting everything that he bets on, you could you could have a situation where both betting on everything that he recommends is is a money loser, and betting against everything he recommends could also be a money loser. Um, and so it, it just doesn't seem like there's any any win there. Okay, next one. Bitcoin, it obviously blew up in the last couple of years. Spencer, do you think Bitcoin is digital gold and it'll overtake gold? It's gold 2.0 or digital pyrite. It's one of these bubbles and uh, it'll be gone by the next time we see it. I don't think it's going to go away, but yeah, closer probably to digital pyrite, you know, and people uh, call you a Luddite when you, you point that out, you don't really, really understand the potential of the blockchain, but the potential of the blockchain is, is still there without this very cumbersome, um, currency that is, is very easy for not easy but i mean you there have been how many hundreds of stories are there of exchanges or people's wallets being being hacked it seems uh less secure than uh than precious metals to me for sure um and and I, there's no there's no basis for its value there's no basis for gold's value either i guess um you know because it's not an industrial metal uh or it is in very limited quantities but there's less basis for uh for bitcoin's value all right, Keith, I have a feeling I know what your answer is, but Bitcoin, digital gold or digital pyrite? What can we even say on that? I just tweeted this morning and I said, here's the acid test. Suppose it became illegal to exchange Bitcoin for dollars, which actually happened to gold between 1933 and 1975, 42 years. Suppose it was illegal for 42 years for Bitcoin to be exchanged for dollars. What would happen? Is there any you know, real question to that? I'll just leave it there. Ooh, tough. Okay, next one. Spencer, you can ask Warren Buffett one question. What do you ask him? Do you leave me in your will? I mean, I don't know. Um, <laughs> what question would I ask him? Gee, um, I, I, he's not really in the habit of, of doling out investment advice, so I would ask him something personal because he's been, you know, um, he's a well-loved person. So I, I would ask him about how to deal with people, how to manage people. Uh, since I manage people at the Wall Street Journal, uh, something along those lines. Yeah, Keith, I, I'm going to ask you the same question, and you can't ask Warren Buffett about gold, and you know why he why he said gold's a shiny pet rock, or maybe you can. But Keith, you get one question to ask Warren Buffett. What do you ask him? I would say, how, how would you, you know, if, if a young person was interested in following your footsteps, how would you um, recommend they go about, you know, doing that? What should they? read, what should they know, what the things they should be striving for. I highly recommend Spencer's book, uh, and I'm sure Mr. Buffett would do the same. And hopefully one day he'll become a monetary metals client. We can have a little chat about that shiny pet rock comment. Okay, next question. Spencer, is the current market a bubble or not? Um, I, I think that we're in the clearly in the deflated, deflating phase of, of a bubble. I think it met every hallmark of a bubble um, in terms of where we got to last year. And we're not off by that much. Of course, the, the, most, uh, the most extremely valued stocks are off much more than the general market. Um, but you know, there, there's, there's always this false hope on the downslope that this is it, this is the point to buy in. And I, I feel like we, we have had um, a, a, like a couple of bear market rallies and maybe a couple more to come. So I think that we, we have uh, 
unfortunately, uh, there, there's more downside. That shouldn't affect your long-term asset allocation because nobody knows, and I could be wrong. Um, I'm not any smarter than anyone else. I, I really don't, don't know. That, that's my personal hunch. Uh, it doesn't affect my, my investment allocation because, because I know that I don't know. Um, yeah. Yeah, listen, all of this goes without saying. We're not giving financial advice or investment advice here. But, okay, Spencer might say we're in a deflated bubble. Keith, what do you think? Bubble of everything? Where are we? So I'm, I'm definitely not a stock trader. So I don't have a strong opinion about what, you know, what the S&P is likely to be in a year or something like that. Um, I wrote an article once about bubbles kind of defining it that saying, okay, look, all valuation is relative to the interest rate because you have to discount future earnings and the discount rate should be the market interest rate. So the lower the interest rate, the higher prices should be. And that isn't a bubble. That's a function of the interest rate, which is a whole different conversation as to how does the interest rate get set and why do we have central planning of interest rates, uh, at least on the short end in the first place. So if one wanted to assess that, one should look at earnings yields and dividends yields, real estate cap rates, just to name a few, and compare to, um, you know, the one, you know, the Fed funds rate, the, the one-year T-bill, the 10-year treasury, and so on, and uh, try to assess it that way and say, okay, from a relative perspective, is it cheap? Is it expensive? I haven't done that analysis. I don't know the answer to that, um, but that's how I would approach it. Okay, next question. Which would be more disruptive to markets? Spencer, a cancer cure discovery or everyone going vegan tomorrow? Wow, um, yeah, so I, I guess you would have to die of something, of Alzheimer's or heart disease or whatever, but yeah, you would have, um, the dependency ratio would be off the charts if you, if you cured every type of cancer tomorrow. Everyone would live an extra 10 or 15 years, uh, which would be, um, would alter society. But I think everyone going vegan would be far more uh, consequential because um, like a stat, like in terms of like the, the amount of, of grain that goes into a, a calorie of protein um, is seven times that, that, you know, the number of calories. And so the world in terms of global warming, in terms of all kinds of things, uh, just in terms of global wealth, everyone going vegan would have far, far, far more impact uh, on commodities and other markets and, and on all kinds of ills uh, in the world. Not that I'm vegan, <laughs> like me, but, yeah. but it would be a good thing if we all, all agreed to do it tomorrow. Okay, Keith, same question. They, they find a cure for cancer or everyone joins me and Spencer. We're vegans from here on in. Yeah, I'm, I'm with Spencer I'm, I'm on the assumption that veganism actually, you live longer. I'm not sure that's true, but if that's, if that's true, and both of them increase life expectancy, but there's so much change to, um, you know, I'm obviously all the cattle ranchers and slaughterhouses go bankrupt. There'd be a lot more disruption to financial markets, a lot more change to commodities markets. Um, you know, global shipping patterns would probably be impacted. I mean, just how do you even get a handle on what would happen if everybody just, you know, renounced meat? Um, you know, cancer cure. I think any insurance company that didn't have a balance between selling insurance, you know, life insurance and selling um, annuities, if, they, if they're balanced, then they're fine. Um, if they're not balanced, if they were life, too life insurance heavy, then um, you know you might find some life insurance companies could go bust. Um, but other than that, I'm not sure uh, that a cancer cure would cancer cure would really be hurting anything. I guess the pension funds. 
defined benefit pension funds would have one more, one more blow raining down upon their head. This is why I love talking to you guys. I get to I get to hear just some of the greatest takes. Okay, next one. Is it better to be smart or lucky when it comes to investing, Spencer? Oh, lucky for sure. Yeah. Um, it's always better to be uh, lucky than smart. Um, the, I, I, I have found um, that people who are, who are generally smart uh, tend to be actually pretty poor investors um, because they're more tempted to be, uh, to be active. And like the, I'll tell you the, um, and this is, this is in the, the very end of, of the, the second book of uh, Revolution. It wasn't just an anecdote that I threw in there, but um, a colleague of mine wrote a book about uh, Renaissance Technologies, which is the most successful hedge fund uh, ever, just basically uses formulas. It doesn't take fundamental views and has had this phenomenal return. And someone asked one of the founders, like, who's on the other side of these trades? And he said, it's, it's a lot of dentists. And that, that's the old kind of cliche is that like, not I like my dentist or whatever, but like dentists are the classic, they have a bit of disposable income. You, you have to be a pretty smart kid to get into to dental school. And so you figure that your general smarts will extend to something like investing and you can figure it out. And, and that uh, it, it doesn't, obviously, um, you know, even people who are, you know, have studied finance. Um, there's a separate study done um, showing that um, in terms of invest brokerage account returns by, uh, by profession and uh, people who work in finance, it didn't specify what type of finance they worked in, had the lowest returns of, of any profession because they thought they knew something. And teachers, and not that teachers are not smart, but teachers had the highest returns because it, it's more uh, a type of person and, and they're more female too. And they tend to be less active and more intimidated by the process. And so they let things sit, uh, which as, as I said, is the kind of 80% of success in the stock market is, is not uh, not disrupting long-term compound interest. So yeah, so lucky is better. Yeah, and um, I, I've known some people who've gotten like, they've made fortunes by accident. Uh, they they bought a stock and forgot about it or something like that. Um, I know a couple of people who have who've made, like they bought Amazon and forgot they bought it, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, stuff like that. And, well, uh, Spencer, my dad is a dentist, so we don't tolerate any anti-dentite language on the <laughs> podcast. That is a mark against you. All right, Keith, your turn. Smart or lucky when it comes to investing? Um, I'm, I'm going to take the other side of that, even though I think I've shared this anecdote before. When I sold my last company, um, you know, it was eight months of a uh, roller coaster that was dominated by things like lawyer summer vacations um and uh syphilis filings and all kinds of stuff and at the end uh and you think you're smart and you think you work really hard and you think you have a great team they work really hard um in the end so the uh for spencer's benefit and anyone in the audience that doesn't know i sold the company to northal networks we were the last acquisition northal ever closed august 19 of 2008 and um the, uh, so the CEO went out to Wall Street, I think it was September 2nd, two, less than two weeks after the deal closed and basically said the wheels are coming off. Rumors had started swirling that they had hired Ernst & Young as bankruptcy advisors, which turned out to be true because when they filed in um, January of 2009, that came out. Um, the transaction closed with probably no more than two days to spare when you know the C-suite knew that everything was falling apart but the mergers and acquisitions group was in Richardson, Texas. And so they didn't call off the deal and they funded and everything was fine. So even despite wow. that, I think I would say 
if smart means high IQ just sort of generally, then I think I agree with Spencer. There are a lot of smart people that lose their money when they try to play in the stock market. But if smart, if smart means specifically how to navigate the investment world, then um, I, I do hold that uh, being smart uh, you know, matters. And luck is something you can't count on. You know, lucky one day and you know, cream the next. Um, I would never, I would never try to plan the the way Diamond were sold to Nortel. I would never try to plan that ever again. It's completely irrepeatable. Once off, um, the level of stress was off the charts during uh, a lot of that. Um, it is what it is. It got done, but um, yeah, smart. Okay, so I define smart as anyone who reads Spencer's books. Okay, last lightning round question, and then I have one more question for you, Spencer. So lightning round question here, which is more likely to revolutionize finance, AI or blockchain? Spencer, what do you think? Um, probably blockchain, probably something like blockchain, right, where you have a secure ledger because it can apply to so many things. I mean, AI is... Um, you know, it's like inventing the wheel. Everyone had got the wheel at, at, at the same time. AI is so widely disseminated that it can help us make decisions. But in terms of competing against one another, uh, it, it won't give anyone a durable edge uh, competing against the other person. Uh, and, and so where you're, you know, you're trading pieces of paper back and forth, what, what difference is it really going to make? I mean, it will give someone who's better at AI today, perhaps a temporary edge. Um, but blockchain, even though I'm a pretty skeptical about cryptocurrencies, which is the main manifestation of it today, uh, I think blockchain is very interesting for all sorts of things. For example, just eliminating, you know, something like like the title on your house, on the land where your, your house sits and stuff like that, where there's gigantic inefficiencies that slow things down, that cost tons and tons of money if you've you know, Benjamin, you're probably too young to have bought a house or an apartment, but like, it's crazy, you know, and, and it's, you know, this, it's totally unnecessary. Uh, so I think that, um, you know, if, if blockchain technology is, you know, where you have this kind of tr trustless system um, permeate finance and other things, um, then it could have a bigger impact. Yeah. Keith, I'm very interested to hear your answer here. Which is going to revolution finance more, AI or blockchain? So I, I have to, to come down certainly against so-called AI and having studied it when I was a computer science major, what they're doing today is not intelligence in any sense of the word at all. Um, it's statistical models. Um, I've got to write an article, so I'm going to uh, for, foreshadow or forecast uh, something. I asked ChatGPT to summarize my theory of interest in prices and um, what I got back from ChatGPT and my interaction with it uh, I, I think it was kind of fascinating. Um, I don't see that. I mean, yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be a nice new set of models for traders to use. But uh, as Spencer said, uh, I totally agree. If every trader has it, then what does it really do? Now people have one more tool on their desk uh, than they had before, but nothing really fundamentally changes. Um, blockchain. Uh, I kind of agree. I mean, it's not you know Bitcoin per se. The blockchain. Uh, certainly has some interesting and promising applications, but I think I think there's a ton of maturation that has to go through before even some of those basic use cases like uh, putting the title, you know, the deed recorder's office on the blockchain, essentially. I think there's a lot more maturation 
before that remotely becomes feasible. And, and the challenge is you have something in the real world and then there's a listing of that thing in the real world on the, um, on the blockchain. How do you guarantee that the listing in the real world isn't uh, changing status without that being reflected on blockchain? And um, I, I, I kind of have an amusing joke that I saw. Somebody was asking when NFTs were in their bubble, so-called non-fungible tokens, Somebody said, can you explain an NFT? And he said, okay, so suppose you're, you're married to a woman and uh, you have a marriage certificate. That's the NFT, whereas this guy is sleeping with her and that's the, that's the physical reality. Um, you know, how do you prevent the NFT problem? And, and, and there may be, you know, really clever solutions, but I think that work has to be done, um, you know, first and, and be proven. And, and, and if and when it, when it does, then I think um, it could change the, the name, then, you know, it could change the game for asset uh, custodian, you know, custodializing assets becomes a different game. You know, getting back to that low resolution picture of Wall Street, one of the Wall Street players out of many, the custodian, you know, gets disrupted, you know, just in that one case of the title to all assets. Uh, you know, if the title to all stock certificates were on the blockchain and you solve a bunch of other problems, then, uh, you know, DTCC potentially goes away or gets disrupted in some way. Um, and what does that look like? I'm, I'm not sure I have a clear picture of it, but that, that could be pretty big. Spencer, I want to thank you so much for coming on. I have one last question for you, which is what is a question that I should ask all the future guests who come onto the podcast? Your, your podcasts are all more or less uh, about investing. Um, I think people are, are hesitant to um, talk about this, but then their answers are very instructive uh, once they stop to think about it. It's like, what's the, what's the biggest regret or mistake that you, you've had uh, investing personally or professionally? All right. Well, I, I, I fear for the next uh, person, I'm going to have to ask them, okay, what do you regret the most? And they're going to have to say it live on the recorded podcast. Spencer, thank you so much for coming on to the Gold Exchange podcast. Where can people find more of your work? If they want all of Spencer Jacob all day long, where should they find you? Okay. Well, they can, uh, my, my surname is spelled J-A-K-A-B, uh, unusual spelling. So Spencer Jacob on Twitter, spencerjacob.com, which is my personal website is not, not very active, but you can you find links to my two books and um, articles and things like that. So th those are the best places to look. And you can follow my articles. Uh, I mainly edit these days, the Hurt on the Street column, but you can find my articles at the Wall Street Journal uh, by searching my name as well. And uh, if, you, if you subscribe to that paper. Spencer, thank you so much for coming on and we'll have to see you again soon. This episode was brought to you by Monetary Memphis. Monetary Metals is a different kind of gold company. Others buy and sell gold. Monetary Metals operates the Gold Yield Marketplace, a platform of products that offer a yield on gold paid in gold to investors and institutions, and are gold financing simplified, reliable financing denominated in gold with a built-in hedge for gold-using and gold-producing businesses. To learn more, visit www.monetary-metals.com. Dot com. See you next time.